August 26, 2020. It's the Watch from Pedro Show.
Pedro show last Wednesday for August. Brother Matt Love Grotto, Quentin Quarantino mode. But I'm uh, not totally man alone because of those engineers in Estonia with their Skype software invention. I got Damon Smith from St. Louis aboard. Welcome, Damon. Uh, yeah, man. Glad to be here. Glad to be on board. 
Okay. We started the show off with John Coltrane doing Cherry Co. And after that, Damon Smith firing Lycan. Damon, what's your earliest musical recollection, please? Well, you know, I brought a bass home, an upright bass home in fourth grade for about a week. So that's my earliest of actually playing music. No, the no, earliest, no, no. Yeah, earliest musical. It's probably, you know, my dad listening to like The Doors or something like that. You know, he was, he. my dad's born in 53 and he was into all that kind of rock from that period. And it was probably something like The Doors, you know, and thinking about that lyric, uh, Killers on the Road, Brain is Squirming Like a Toad, that kind of thing. Damon, when you say that era, you don't mean 1953. You're probably talking about 1965, 66, 67. Yeah, 65 until, you know, the middle 70s. You know, that's when my dad was really listening to a lot of that that kind of stuff. And and, uh, then my mom played classical guitar. So there would have been some of that. And then, you know, piano and things like that. You mean there's a piano at the pad? Yeah. And yeah. Where's, where's this, Damon? Well, this would be in uh, Kennewick, Washington to start with, and then uh, we ended up in Fremont, California, and Livermore, California. You know, right around, that's all around Oakland, San Francisco, well, those places. Well, it's a little more east of there. In fact, it's closer yeah. to where the Rolling Stones tried to do their Altamont oh, game. Abs- absolutely. That's right outside of Livermore. And, you know, Kennewick was right outside. My dad was working on the nuclear reactors at Hanford. He's well, an electrician. Say, well, that's up in Washington. State. Yeah, that's where I was. That's where I kind of grew up until 13. But, and then but, we end up in, but, in uh, California. But there's another nuke connect with Livermore because all the buttons. Yeah. You know, the uh, plutonium. Yeah. Yeah, Lawrence Livermore Labs. That's a lot probably, of my friends uh, in high school and, and uh, middle school, their parents worked there and stuff like that. Well, probably your pop, because Hanford was another nuke thing. He was mainly going into the city and doing, like, tech stuff by then, because uh, you know, uh, and going, like, the Silicon Valley and stuff like that. And Livermore was sort of one of the closest places he could buy a decent house. And so, uh, yeah, that's where he, what he was doing. Wow, that's on the other side of the bay, though. Yeah, yeah, you do these long commutes. He's a real soldier. You're talking about yeah. Sunnyvale. In fact, there's three yep. big uh, airship hangars there they built in the 30s. I've never all, been to those. Well, you don't. I don't think you really go to them, but you can drive. <laughs> yeah. You can drive by them. They're so huge they didn't tear them down. I mean, you know, I'm talking not blimps, but airships, big metal. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. we had the yeah. Shenandoah and the Akron and the, a lot of, uh, one was called the Los Angeles. A lot of bad accidents, so we got out of that. And then the blimps came later, but they were more like a no rigid thing. But let's get to your music thing. So you grew up in a house where there's listeners and there's play- yeah. and there's players. Yeah. So why didn't you get on the guitar or the piano young? Well, my dad kept telling me that I should. And then I said... Well, I want a bass, and I was doing this uh, freestyle BMX thing. Yeah, but why? And, why why and did I you was, want a bass? I I just and it, this was before I'd heard you. You know what I was into then in that period, like middle school on. I was really into Fear, GBH, um, those kind of bands, you know, Fear, and Black Flag. I was I'll just starting to get about, Black Flag. I'll tell you something about Fear. The bass player was Durf Scratch. I bought my first Fender P bass from Turf Scratch out of the recycler when Minuteman was first starting. That's amazing. 
and he had real heavy flats on it, maybe 120 E string. Wow, like a like an upright bass. <laughs> oh, pert air, I mean. Yeah. <laughs> but but it, in, uh, it did pull up on the neck because there was so much tension. He had those, and he's the guy who told me, if don't buy new ones if they get kind of dead, boil them in water. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I tried yeah. that once and yeah, it didn't work. So I, yeah. I thought you said you you played a stand up when you were in the fourth grade, just for a week, and then I took it back. So it was a real fleeting thing. It was just one week, and then I didn't do it. And then I was doing this bicycle thing and into punk rock, you know, and and kind of like we were we needed something when we were doing these bike tricks. We needed music that wasn't so harsh, but it was a complicated thing we were doing. So we liked complicated stuff. So a lot of fire hose, a lot of meat puppets. You know, this is like my later teens, you know, when we're really serious about that. My friend Mike Woods found that sometimes EP, and we really loved it. And then we kind of went backwards, got the Minutemen meat puppets and all that. But, like, there was this period where, like, all the fire hose records were going hard tapes out of the boombox, right, at the parking lot. And, uh, you know, Meat Puppets Up on the Sun, those kind of records. And they were sort of just right for doing these things. And then my friend Mike and I, this is where I get into playing bass. My friend Mike and I went to San Jose State, and I forget who, I think it was, uh, what a Juliana Hatfield, uh, she might have opened, then it was Firehose, then Primus at San Jose State, it was early 90s. Uh, no, when you played there, it was with Maceo Parker. Oh, it wasn't Primus. It was okay. Maceo Parker is what I remember. Wow. San Jose State, that's what I remember. Yeah. I pl- uh, I played with Firehose with Primus at the Greek Theater. But I that, remember the those band, gigs. Yeah. But the other band was called, uh, they were the Camper Van Beethoven Cra- guys. But they Cracker. Were, yeah, they were later on, some of the guys. But anyway, you know, you come out playing, and and I and we weren't Damon, prepared Damon, for Damon, yeah. Thing, yeah. things get blurry, so don't worry about that so much. I, I'm interested about this bass in the fourth grade. What happened? Class? He said you it, could, it was a, it was a string instrument class, and it had gut strings, right? Because this was the '70s still, okay. and um, and I liked it, but you know, I'm carrying it home on the bus and everything. And then I think I just brought it back, and and it didn't really take. It was it was weird, but it that was the so impulse. You, you, you know, there was that school, impulse. But your school had music yeah. class like that. Yes, a grade yeah. school. Yeah, it was like a grade school in Washington State. This yeah, but that's uh, that's not so common, you know. That's no, not even then. And and it was it wasn't an orchestra though. It was like a string quartet, but with bass. Okay, and what about uh, first? record that you bought with your own money i'll tell you exactly what it was it was um it was kiss alive and what was the first gig you went and saw the first gig that i went and saw that i can remember was um i'm trying to think about that that i really saw because you know we were living in, in washington state there wasn't anything going on there i don't think i ever saw live music in that period. I wanted to go see Kiss when I was little, but it never happened. And it might have been like the accused in San Francisco. Okay. At at um it's one of those places that you would have played this club. It was a really well known club. Bruce Connor took a lot of his photos there and Flipper used to play there. And it was up uh kind of in North Beach. I mean, it's slipping my mind, but famous punk club, not the Mab, but another one. And and the accused played there, and that might have been my first show that I ever went to. And uh, 
What about the thing where after school you want to, well, you, you really don't make the bridge because you let that string bass alone. Yeah. So you, you, you never got into electric bass guitar? Well, I did after I saw you at San Jose State because, um, you know, and, and it was a really interesting thing because I loved music. I mean, I was really into it. You know, I was really into the, your, your records. I was really into all these punk bands and stuff. And I was doing this bike thing, and I didn't really think that it was a thing that you should do, that I would do. I didn't think it was a thing for me. And then you came out that day with Firehose playing. And I already knew I liked your bass playing. I already knew I liked the bass. So I already knew, you know, Mike Watts, the bass player, these bass lines are great. I understood that much. But, yeah, but we didn't know how hardcore Firehose was But you're out of high school. Yeah, like so just you're, 18 you're, and a half yeah, or so, right about Yeah, but you're telling there. me is that in junior high and high school, you never had a band after school, like in the bedroom or the garage no. or the basement. You never did any of that? None of that. No, I was just doing these bike tricks. Oh, yeah, well, that's not music, but... No, no, I know that, you were doing it. something. You were just doing bicycle, okay? Yeah, but, yeah. But you, but you were probably going to some gigs. You said you... Uh, by this time, you're not in Washington. You're in California. I'm in California, but, and I don't. I I would just, you know, I was just obsessed with the bicycle thing and just records and tapes, you know, just tapes. And, okay, but no, and that, no, that was no gigs. The way I was hearing it. Because no I know out, out in the Livermore part, yeah, there's there was no gigs. <laughs> now there wasn't we'll, a lot I could get to, and that's when in Livermore was when I went to see the accused, and then I started going to the city to see some stuff when it would come around. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. then and then when I I ended up uh, leaving home early, I left home at eighteen. And then I was just I was still doing the bicycle thing and really doing that hardcore. But this was before the X Games, so there's no money in it or anything. And that's when when I saw this Firehose gig, and then that's when everything changed. And I don't know, probably two weeks after that, I got a bass, and it was, of course, a P bass. It was a Red Squire. You know, uh, and, you know these days, there's a town there called Dublin. Yep. And it's a big st strip mall, track home. Yep. <laughs> My dad lives next to it in Pleasanton, and my okay. one of my best friends, this artist, uh, Daniel Healy, he's from Dublin, and I always make jokes to him about it. But it <laughs> it's way different than when you were a boy, right? I mean, Jesus, yeah, way, yeah, way yeah. different. It became like a, a burb for the city or something. Look, I want to play yeah. uh, the Embers of the Year. Thank you. 
from Pedro show. Yeah, Damon Smith doing uh, the Embers of the Year. Then R04 and I'm on there with bass and some voice. Uh, Wai, the real version out of Tokyo. Orange Umbrachi, Jim O'Rourke and Few with Patient Soup. Just a sample because it's a big piece. Tobacco from his upcoming album Body Double. Minutemen Live in 1985 Indianapolis. Fuck, I can't remember the venue. But in your eyes. I haven't heard that in a while. You know, something off a three-way tie, which I don't really listen to. Uh, television with Dick Hill, 1975, doing UFO, CBGBs. Pat Smear after that, uh, Guitar Man for the Germs, from his uh, second solo album, Ever Alone With E. Uh, Chris Chappelle's Distortion Pedal out of North Carolina with Factory Reset. And finally, Damon Smith, Broken Mirrors, Where the World Sees Itself Shattered. So, you're going into the city, you're seeing some hardcore? Yeah, gotta, yeah, I'm uh, seeing some, like, like the gotta, guys that would form Rancid and stuff like that, you know, because they're, well, I think, around my age. I think that was, it, if I remember right, Ska band named Operation Ivy. Exactly. Yeah, those guys would be around. And then, and then you know, once I started playing, you know, because then I'm just like what's his 18, name? 19. Matt, uh, Matt a really for, good bass man. His name's yeah, Matt. great, great bass yeah, player. Matt, I can't remember his name. His first name is Matt. 
Yeah. And I think he lives in SoCal now. But that guy could, if, and I think he was in both bands. And he could. Yes. He can Beautiful jam. bass he player. Can, yeah, he can jam. He can jam. So, but I'm trying to get the uh, listeners caught up here, Damon. So, yeah. you're, you're seeing gigs in the city, and you go, and you buy a Fender. A Squire, yeah, I, well, I, had a, Squire, I had a friend, a and I knew she had one. And I'm working at a gas station, and it's long enough times, you know. I saw I, I, uh, I, I embezzled the money. I'd like sold some stuff and and didn't uh, report it because I wanted to play bass so bad. And I bought it from her for fifty bucks that night. I just made this decision. It was about two weeks after seeing you play. I was like, I gotta have a bass, and then I bought it from her, and uh, and then I went and got it and I started started playing on it. Yeah, but and what, then, Damon? What about an amp? Then I got a PV amp like about three days later. Yeah. One of those, you know, you know, you know how it goes. Offend, no, uh, no, the Squire first... P bass PV amp, you know. Well, I didn't have the Squire <laughs> P bass, but first Minuteman amp was a PV four hundred with two fifteens, three hundred watt. Yeah, nice. I got well, a pretty nice PV later. The I don't think it was PV that nice, the... but it was. You know, what can you do? Right there, Econo. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, and then uh, and then I you know and then I started going to see all kinds of stuff you know I was that by that point I'd moved in into Oakland and I was going to Gilman Street all the time you know that's when I would start to see you more regularly you know I, would, we saw, I saw that one gig at San Jose State and then I was still out in the suburbs a little bit and didn't get out as much but then pretty much every time you came through with Firehose the whole time Firehose was around we, we were at the gig if it was in the Bay Area or Sacramento you know we were there. And even even after that, you know, I saw the engine room stuff at Bottom of the Hill and all that. And, uh, you know, I ended up playing a lot of those places, Slim's and Bottom of the Hill. And I think Slim's is such a great club. I think it's sad that, that it closed. Uh, uh, the engine room with Slim's, not Bottom of the Hill. Right. And then I feel like there was something at Bottom of the Hill with Biza. Well. Does that seem right? But well, Biza no, well, no, and, the, no, no. And, and the drummer from the engine room. A trio of yours. Well, well uh, Joe Biza was in the first three touring bands of Contemplating the Engine. Okay. The first tour is with Steve Hodges and then with Bob Lee. But uh, look, I want this to be about you, not <laughs> fucking me. Yeah, yeah, but there's some no, interesting things about you that would no, be cool no, to no, hear look, about. You know, no, uh, no, here's what I think would be more interesting because I actually get invited by you without fire hose or even without contemplating the engine room, you asked me to come up and play with three of your buddies on yeah, stand-up yeah, bass. Yeah, yeah, Bull Fiddle. This bass quartet. Okay, I and, think uh, this is more important, Damon. Yeah, yeah. And that, well, I'll tell you one of the, the heaviest things about that is, like, I thought, hey, I'll call you up and maybe you'll send us a piece of music to play. You know, and, you're, and you say, well, I got lots of music. I'll come up there and play. And then... What the heavy thing for me, being such a Minutemen fan, is the first time I heard a lot of those. The first time I heard any Minutemen songs live was playing them with you, and you can imagine the intensity of that for a young musician, you know, to to play these songs. Yeah, but they're live. a little different. Come on, there's no Georgie, there's no D Boone. No, no, they're different, but it's like you know, it's it's you you know, and then and then later you know you're doing them with the Missing Men, which was really cool. But that was such a weird project to do. You know, and I didn't know. Well, with the missing man, they were actually for the encore, for yeah. the third opera, and I wanted to sh show people the connection between the parts of the third opera and stuff I had written for the Minutemen. 
But again, we're talking about me. Look, this is about you, Damon. Yeah, yeah. Okay, but well, the, okay. So the heavy thing that that also yeah, but did, let, these people weren't there. So let's explain yeah. to them. So, so, so I, I had a baseball there. quartet with my three, yeah. three of my friends: uh, Lincoln Smith, Morgan Guberman, and uh, George Kramoski. And uh, we were trying to get pieces from people. We were trying to get something from Chadbourne. We had recorded something at Chadbourne's, and we were trying to get something from Elliot Sharp. And then we asked Mike, Mike Watt. Watt says, I'll come up and play with you. So I, I get a gig for us, and uh, there's an, an, another heavy component where the gig had a little bit of money, and I asked you if we could spend half of it on Turetsky, uh Bertram Turetsky, the greatest uh, avant-garde classical b- double bass soloist. And you were you were happy to do that. You said, "Oh, that sounds great." You know. Well, actually, it was more. It was three gigs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we did one in uh, in Oakland, and then I think a rehearsal. And, but uh, one was at a club on the, in the city called DNA. DNA, yeah, yeah. And then there was a coffee shop in the East Bay. That's right. And and I then, think that and was then, it. And then actually, it was first two days of just wailing on it with Prack. Yeah. And it was and you, very sweaty. Yes. My apartment had no AC. <laughs> That's all right. Yeah, they, what I liked was nobody gave up. Everybody <laughs> stuck to it and kept going and kept the focus. And we ended up doing the gigs. And I got to meet Mr. Yeah, Bertram Turetsky and improvise with him. Incredible. That was at the DNA Lounge. Yeah. And you, and you would say, with your bows, Eiler. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is great. The, the, yeah. the, the Arco. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, because, you know, even though I'm bass, I'm not really from the stand-up world so much, you know, and so there was a lot to learn. I, I went and got one and tried to learn it, but, man, is it tough. But that was a trippy gig, people. It was four stand-up yeah. basses and what on electric bass. And then... We got you did company. a couple of solos too. Well, we got to you, also accompany Mr. Turetsky on it, some improvisation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and you did a you did a couple of solo pieces for an encore from uh, from Mr. Machinery Operator all by yourself. The one that that Pettibone wrote the lyrics to. Well, what that was was stuff that I had played. Yeah, it was for great. The last song of that tour I did with uh, Dave Grohl, Ed Vedder, and Pat Smear. I, that, I would come out I and do it. It was called Powerful Hankering, a song I wrote. Yeah, yeah. Actually, it's some dose music, and then I put it to Raymond's words for the last Firehose album. But again, we're talking about me, David. Yeah. Well, one of the things about the way that you played the bass guitar, when, you, when yeah, you're someone you who, who thinks... Damien, you got to you gotta yeah. save it because we're at the end of the first hour. Okay. Of the right. August 26, 2020 edition. The Watt from Pedro Show with a special guest, Damon Smith. Hold tight for hour two. Yeah, August 26, 2020. It's the second hour of the Watt from Pedro Show. <laughs> Oh, my God. 
Directions to the Other World.
memories going through my head, accompanied by tears and sighs. I'm laying here on my lonely bed, reading from my book of life. Read all your ruthless words Through these tears in my eyes Calculated and truthless words They're written down here In my book of lies Oh How you promised Said you loved me right from the start But every promise you made Was a promise broken And every broken promise broke my heart Now as I read here what you said to me Honey, I'm gonna love you till the sun don't rise Like all weepers, I weep alone Reading from my book of life All you promised and promised Said you loved me right from the start But every promise made was a promise broken And every broken promise broke my heart Now As I read here what you said to me Baby, I'll love you till the sun don't rise Like all weepers I weep alone Reading from my book of lies Like all weepers We belong Reading From my Book of Lies
Watch for Peter Show. We start off the second hour. Damon Smith, the race and landscape. Sam Bennett after that, Tokyo, originally Birmingham. Uh, same town, Sun Ra, right? Birmingham, yeah. Birmingham, Sonny Blount. You know, his bass man ended up writing a lot of songs later on. Well, you know, I think a lot of those Sun Ra songs consisted of Sun Ra pointing at Ronnie Boykins, because that was, the well, for me, the best bass man of his. Well, uh, the, he's got credit for a song I covered last year with uh, Tar Baby's uh, Bucky Pope called Tiny Pyramids, oh. and he's got the song credit. Oh, nice. Okay. Um, great bass player. Sam yeah, Bennett. Yeah, and a stand-up guy, too. And he did a lot of Arco. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's there's a reissue of Heliocentric Worlds where you can hear him really well. And actually, I think if, if you could hear him this well before, it's a Swiss company, Haddard, doing these re- reissues. And I think he would have been one of the most famous bass players even more so because when you hear what he's doing, he's an incredible technical bass player and yeah, so creative but, but yeah I mean, he also laid the foundation for a lot of sun Ra's tunes in the 60s and 70s yeah yeah and he's a chicago guy my friend a uh, drummer that i played with a lot alvin fielder who was in sun Ra's band in the 50s played with them a lot and used to talk about him but well, um lovely a, bass player there's a great book john zved bases the yes. place and it goes back all the way where he goes from bama up to Chicago, and you know he's playing R and B clubs. Fletcher Henderson, that who's big inspiration exactly. for him. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, Sam Bennett. After that, would bless your pretty bones. Ma she win. This is uh, something in the city. Uh, she read some poems, but she was in SoCal in the early '80s. Uh, punk scene, South Bay. Storage Unit Two Hundred Two. His name is alive. Water and birds. But I, I think something came out today by him. Or it got remixed by some people in D.C. or something. I'll find out later, people. Guided by voices. Bob Pollard. End it with light. Uh, Kim Salmon, Spencer P. Jones. We lost brother Spencer P. James Jones to cancer last year. Very sad. Great cat. I got to meet him with, uh, he was playing with Beast of Bourbon. Mm. Scorched Earth Pearl. And Betty Levette, Book of Lies. The Verve people sent me that. And then finally, From Green to Yellow. Damon Smith. So this gig, I know, okay, you you were just looking for music. Then I came up and played, spent some days with you guys, and we put together a gig and played some gigs. And But you say it was a big deal in your music thing? Yeah, Dr- I mean, journey, just to journey. be able to, you know, to be able to, to, to get, to interface with that music that was so important to me, you know, and to, and to also go to the source of what made me want to play music in the first place. You, know, you can't imagine. I mean, you can probably imagine what that's like having played with uh, Joey Picard now, you know, and stuff like that. But it's oh, it's Joe a, Bouchard. Yeah, Joey Bouchard. Yeah. yeah. So so it's kind of like that for me. You know, it was like it was like this heavy thing, and then it you was know, an interesting never, thing because it put me at a crossroads. What do I do next? You know, you know me what's and Joe. The next thing to do? But when I played with Joe, I, it was never two basses. Like in the studio, I remember he played piano, so I never got to do a two bass thing with it. Unfortunately, his brother yeah, Albert, a lot of times him on the drums, but I never got to do the two bit because I learned a lot of bass things, bass guitar stuff from probably Joe Bouchard, and Dennis Dunaway were the biggest U.S. influences on me as far as rock and roll bass. Then the other U.S. influences, James Jamerson and uh, who's the thumb guy in Sly's band? Oh, oh, Larry Graham, um, uh, Larry Graham. yeah, yeah, uh, Larry Graham. Larry Graham. Those, those yeah. are so those are big influences. Uh, you know. Look, you just recently gave me this uh, piece of music from Ben Patterson, the variation for Double Bass 1961. Yeah.
As always, I write the postcard to Bertram Turetsky. Thanks for everything you've done for the base. Damon, best Damon, posted through the F hole.
simple truth. I bought a dollar and a half's worth of small red potatoes, took them home, boiled them in their jackets and ate them for dinner with a little butter and salt. Then I walked through the dried fields on the edge of town. In middle June, the light hung on in the dark furrows at my feet. And in the mountain oaks overhead, the birds were gathering for the night. The jays and mockers squawking back and forth. The finches still darting into the dusty light. The woman who sold me the potatoes was from Poland. She was someone out of my childhood in a pink spangled sweater and sunglasses, praising the perfection of all her fruits and vegetables at the roadside stand and urging me to taste even the pale, raw sweet corn trucked all the way she swore from New Jersey. Eat, eat, she said. Even if you don't, I'll say you did. Some things you know all your life. They're so simple and true They must be said without elegance, meter, and rhyme. They must be laid on the table beside the salt shaker, the glass of water, the absence of light gathering in the shadows of picture frames. They must be naked and alone. They must stand for themselves. My friend Henry and I arrived at this together in 1965 before I went away, before he began to kill himself, and the two of us to betray our love. Can you taste what I'm saying? It is onions or potatoes, a pinch of simple salt, the wealth of melting butter. It is obvious. It stays in the back of your throat like a truth you never uttered. Because the time was always wrong. It stays there for the rest of your life. Unspoken. Made of that dirt we call earth. The metal we call salt. In a form we have no words for. And you live on it.
Why for Pedro show? Uh, you just heard Damon Smith with Heat Rest. And, uh, before that was uh, Benjamin Boone and uh, Philip Levine doing the simple truth. Redneck Manifesto ahead of that. Rubber up. Ghost in front of that. That's a band from the city. Chrome. No. Chrome is the band. Helios Creed. Ghost is a tune. Flying Vipers before that. Brand new. Cloud Kill. There's some uh, reggae bass there. Peter Lochner from the old Cleveland scene. Papa doing a... Jonathan Richmond, huh? Pablo Picasso. And then we started all off with uh, something Damon gave me. Uh, and it, I want I want you guys to hear about this because uh, it, the world of improvised music is kind of trippy because people actually cover improvised pieces and there's actually instructions, people. Uh, you, let, let them know, Damon. Well, so ben, Benjamin Patterson was a, was an African American classical bass player in the in the fifties and sixties, and and he wasn't allowed to do that in America because you couldn't do that here. So he ended up in Canada. Long story short, he makes a connection with Stockhausen to do electronic music in Cologne. He gets there. Stockhausen's a dick, and that same night he goes and meets John Cage and David Tudor, and he's on the founding. He's, he, he ends up in the, as a founder of the Fluxus movement. Uh, the most famous person from that is Yoko Ono, that people know. And it, was, and it was a lot of poets and artists and musicians trying to find a common ground and dissolve things. And so Ben made this this monumental bass piece, and it's it's a, it's four pages of, of very specific instructions. You know, you got to stick a balloon inside the bass with a surgical tube and blow it up, and have that inflate a balloon. And then you and I have that play a slide whistle, so that thing the slide whistle plays that. You got to eat at the end of it. You know, you got to try to tune the bass with bird calls. And there's a lot of things that are fairly absurdist. And and the way I do it, I try to do it deadpan. But then this recording, uh, so the piece is about half visual. But Ben did it as an audio only piece. And when I did it as an audio only piece, I'm trying to get. I realize there's no silent section, so I'm trying to push forward all the all the sounds of each section that they make one of them you know you got to put a map on the floor put the end pin in the base in the city you're playing in and circle it and uh and i've got it it's coming out as a as a lathe cut limited edition and uh it should be out in the middle of september but the digital version's up at my band camp now but yeah so that's and i got to meet ben he had a big show in houston he, he died he, he was in his 80s but i got to meet him and we got to talk about the bass and and uh you know mainly classical bass and and we went out to eat and stuff like that. And uh, he was a great guy. But I don't know if you would call that classical bass. Well, you know, not really. But there, there's things where he says play Weyburn. And then uh, there was an earlier version that actually had some classical lines in it. But I, I do his the mo the one that he did, this the version from the end of his life. He, he had some orchestral bits in there in the earlier parts. No, why I bring but, that up, Damon. Yeah. It's because bass. In my yeah. mind, it's almost like the word that's pronounced the same, but spelled with an E in the end. Yeah. Almost like a foundation. Yeah, but you pursued bass in a direction where it is not the foundation. It's man alone. Yeah. And and I, well, I the thing is, is I'm, so I'm 47 and I've been doing the improvised music for like 25 years. And I never really made a solo record like that one that I just sent you. Because um, I do like playing, I like to listen to solo bass a lot, and I, and I like doing the gigs sometimes. But mainly, I like to play with people, kind of like what you're saying, the glue and all that. And and you know, I like to do it with the bass as an equal partner. But I still like that foundational idea. I just like redefining what the foundation could be. 
Okay, and, okay. Yeah, yeah, because foundation with other guys, not man alone, ensemble. Yeah, yeah. Probably requires he, it probably requires some kind of uh repetition. Well, I some ways I kind of think about it as, you know, you have this the, the string bass with the bow and everything, right? And in some ways I think about it as you've got a whole string section right there. So if you're doing stuff that's not in the low end, it's still sort of like you could do something that would maybe be like the violins playing a part that's not a solo part, right? And then the low end comes in and there's drama. So uh, I like to kind of think about it in some ways that way, that you've got this whole orchestra right there. And there's this great trumpet player, Bill Dixon, and he was a guy who would use two basses and sometimes three. For his first record, Intents and Purposes, Intents and Purposes has Jimmy Garrison and Reggie Workman on it. But um, he used to say that each person is people, their own orchestra. People, those are the two bass players that work with John Coltrane. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, but here, here's about. what I'm saying, Damon. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if you really want an instrument with a big spread, cella. And talk yeah. about talk about drama that's tuned in fifths, so the jumps are bigger. Yeah. But what I'm what, what I was saying is, when I hear you in an ensemble... You still, you're not, you don't do repetition. Not very much, yeah. no. Yeah. Try to keep, so that's keep what I, that, that, that's what I should have said more than just man alone. It's like, there's nothing wrong with it and it's not anti-bass. It's just another way of doing it. And what I'm asking you is what kind of like pushed you that way? Um, I think, well, you know, in a lot of ways it was, it was the way that your music had so many color changes in it as far as bass guitar goes. Like, I don't even know if there's a bass guitar player besides guys like Michael Manring and Victor Wooten who put more colors in their line. And so it was sort of pursuing that and then wanting it not to ever end. So it just sort of keep going. It keeps going from there, like one thing to the next. And, and, the, and, if we, and the other thing is, in improvised music, depending on who you're playing with, let's say you're playing with a jazz guy, if you give them too much uh, repetition, they'll get stale. So some of it comes from that Charles Mingus stuff, you know, where he's playing under a soloist and him, him and Danny Richmond will just double the time. Yeah. You know, in yeah. some ways it's a, it's a version of that. Like you can either lay it down for someone or you can pull the rug out, you know. And then later on I got a lot more into walking bass, you know, when I'd get to be – when I started to play with these great drummers – you know, because you know how the bass, you know, the thing I call a bass player dumb luck, where you just end up on stage with somebody who you never thought you'd play with, you know, and then when I started to get with these great drummers, I would do a little more repetition and lay into the bass part so much because it feels so good with them. You know, this guy, Alvin Fielder, who I played with quite a bit, who Dave Dove, who was on your show, must have talked about. And he was in Sunrise Band of the 50s. Houston guy who plays uh, trombone. Yeah. 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 yeah bass clef. Look, 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 Damon. Well, I also think there was a function. Uh, why that walking happened because of the way they used the kick drum. But we ran out of time. It's uh, <laughs> the second hour, August 26, right. 2020 edition. Wap Peter, so special guest, Damon Smith. Hold tight for hour three. August 26, 2020, it's the third hour. Wap for Peter Ocean.
Thank <laughs> you.
Lot from Pedro Show. We start off the third hour with Thirst Wakes and Builds. Damon Smith and Crane with Second Thoughts. Ned Collette and Wirewalker with At the Piano. Moloman out of Balmore with Imperial Chemicals. Punk is a doornail with Nacho Burger and finally Two Hands. Something live from Damon Smith. Yeah, because you know, drummers used kick drum for bombs. They didn't, yeah. They didn't use it. I think it's Earl Palmer with uh, Little Richard because he wasn't carrying up bass man that he comes up with that steady kick drum thing. So I just, I think it was, a, for one thing, it was hard to record, you, you kind of referred to this, it's hard to record stand-up basses in the old days. Yeah, yeah. Maybe even nowadays, even though we got contact pickups and stuff. Even still, you just want to point a mic at the thing, you know, and get some good separation. You know, that's always the best way. I did one album where I ran my pickup through with, um, it's an album called, I think you have it, called Astral Plane Crash that Henry Kaiser probably gave you, that we did with Weasel and the great drummer Bob Moses, who was on that uh, Pat Metheny record with Jocko, Bright Size Life. And so it was two drummers, and I just thought, okay, we'll do the pickup for this one and deal with it, like the 70s, you know. But usually I just put a mic in front of it, get a little bit of uh, baffling, and and it and it comes out okay. With today's technology, you know they can they can get it uh, recorded pretty well. Yeah. But you know this kick drum thing is interesting because that drummer Alvin that I was playing with, we were at a at a gig in in Austin once, and we we're playing with a Norwegian saxophone player, and we're doing the sound check, and he doesn't have a, a kick drum pedal, right? And we're doing it, and everything sounds good, and then somebody brings in the kick drum pedal, and the way he played the kick drum pedal, once he starts getting it in there he made the bass louder and the whole group opened up instead of burying stuff those old guys knew how to feather the bass drum in this way that opened up the music in a very special way yeah but and I mean, it, it was just an, it was another way of using it it was just completely yeah. completely different and also you know we're talking about a time when piano and guitar were considered rhythm section yeah Everybody yeah. except the fucking horns in the strings was rhythm section. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, it's just a whole a whole other way. And it's, it's interesting, guys like you who play uh, stand-up, and you, you kind of bring some of that old days into a world where we know other things that they didn't know then. But you still explore. It, even though you're using this traditional... Actually, it's a it's a fucking violin that's all steroided up without a chin part. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Well, yeah. I think they did that to keep the timber the same. Yeah, yeah. Right? They did it with saxophone. They did it with all kinds of instruments. So the timber yeah. would kind of stay the same. You just made them smaller or bigger. God, yeah. I saw this one fucking uh, really contra bass saxophone. You got to get on a fucking ladder to play. Yeah, Vinny, you you played with Vinny. I must you must play Vinny Golia a bunch of times, right? Yeah, but he never played that. He was playing soprano. But I know the Violent Femmes. Brother Steve McKay told me about them using. He's got a, a, a what is it? He's got the two backs. That's this kind of it's a contrabass saxophone, but it's all twisted up so it's smaller, and he can handle it. Vinny has everything. He's a great great musician. Yep, I met him through House uh, Klein. Yeah, did you ever see like John Carter or Horace Tapscott or those guys coming up? I've always wanted to ask you that. When I saw Horace Tapscott, his bass player was Roberto Miranda. Great bass player, man. Beautiful really, really bass intense. And then a couple times, like Watts Festival's things, me and uh, Raymond Pettibone would go to. <clears throat> he had three bass players. Roberto, one of them. 
Well, you know who played tuba for him was Red Calendar, who was Mingus's bass teacher. But yeah, at high school, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, great, great. Yeah, LA yeah, bass player. right, right. Tuba. I I saw Red, but he had he was so old by this time he only played a, a song and he had his students playing. But Raymond oh, wow. knew about all this shit. And he would take me to see all these guys. You know, I was very very lucky that way. But uh, Roberto Miranda, a very physical player, really. Uh, Interesting guy with Horace. The giant has a reason. Yeah, yeah, beautiful shit. Uh, yeah. Here, here I want to play from yellow to red.
Fever Show last music for this edition from Yellow to Red from Damon Smith. Uh, piece number four. This is live October 2nd, 2008. Matoka Honda, Joe Berardi, Emily Hay, uh, all improvised. And finally, Slick Insides, Bertram Tureski and Damon Smith. Well, yeah, so, you know, after that stuff we did, I ended up studying with Bertram on and off. You know, whenever I could get down there, his son lived up in the Bay Area and he would come up and I'd take lessons from him. And I became friends with him. And then one day we were on the phone and one of us, I can't remember if it was me or him, said we should make a duo. And then we're like, oh, yeah, you know, and I got the studio time and everything. And then like three days later, I was like, holy shit, I got to make this duo with Zaretsky. I better, <laughs> you know, because I, I wasn't intimidated at first because he's such a nice guy. But then once I once it hit me, that was a really big thing to be able to do. Yeah, yeah. Well, the reason I got it is because you floated to me. <laughs> and the and the titles are from uh, a poet that you might know, Paul Ceylon, very econo poet. You know, three or four lines like Minutemen songs, and uh, he made up these these words, these compound words, and and those are the English translations of them. Right, right. But, uh, so what you like to do is set up events and see what happens. Yeah, and in, in some ways of working, I have that are a little bit different. Sometimes I'll have uh, people that I like somebody in the town that I live in, like in Houston, I was playing a lot with this guitar player, Sandy Ewan or David Dove. And so we do a gig and it'd be them plus the new person or like Weasel Walter and I have done, you know, 50 projects together. So you got a couple known quantities and then a new one. Um, one of the reasons I started doing improvised music, and this is something that you could relate to. It, I was listening to a record and I won't say who, because the people are still alive, but the bass player I ended up studying with later, and uh, and the bass part was just so stupid. And I had this idea of the saxophone player walking over to the bass part with bass player with this piece of music in his hand that wasn't very good. And then the the whole thing about improvising for me, in a lot of ways, is that I try to my idea is that I don't want to play with someone that I felt feel I need to play what to do. You know, if I if I, if I I don't need to tell them what to play. Like if I get a trombone player, they're going to handle the trombone part and they're going to play it better than than. Uh, anything I could come up with. And like on that solo record that you've been playing, like those are sort of my compositions and they're not the same every time, but there's a lot of that material that I bring out. And then each time I bring it to a new person, they have something different to say with it. 
and um, and and it's it's kind of a philosophy like that to just kind of see what the people bring to the thing instead of bossing them around, you know. And and you can imagine, you know, there's so many bass parts that aren't very good, you know, like when you were saying how these early bass players were the ones that you could hear, <laughs> you know, that's that's who you were into, you know. Well, you know, to me, it's a good bass part if the song works. Yeah, I I really believe you gotta like need some kind of focus. Well, what what you're what you're saying is great though. You don't want yeah. all the communication before. T- you want the communication while you guys are playing. Yeah. Well, and, and, and I think you can make a good, like in this case, it was one of those uh, 80s jazz things where the bass player just repeats the thing over and over, and they play a tricky head, and somebody just solos on it forever and nothing. And yeah, I think you can make great repeating bass lines. I mean, you've got a, a million of them. Uh, there's people like the bass player uh, Ronnie Boykins that we're talking about. I mean, he had the best repeating bass lines of anybody. So it's not that I'm against that. It's just that I wanted the bass to to have its own voice, you know, always. And that comes from you. And then the next person that really blew me away was the German bass player Peter Kowald. And I had this record of his where he's doing duos with a bunch of people, and they're short pieces, not Minutemen short, but three or four minutes. And his whole thing was that the bass would be an equal partner in the thing. But he was also into these real short uh, pieces when he made records. And coming from the Minutemen as my favorite thing to listen to at that period, that was real easy for me to grasp onto. You know, that the, these short pieces, and he'd have kind of a couple ideas in it, and they'd be improvised with a trio or something like that. And then that kind of... Uh, that kind of stuck with me, and then to just try to keep the bass as as an equal voice in the group um, is is a is a thing. But it's not for everybody, you know. I mean, we need other people to to do more traditional bass, and I actually like to teach that stuff. And I love, you know, figuring out what a bass line's doing. And and when I play jazz, I like to just stick to quarter notes, you well, know, what, rather what, than what about where it dominates? What because you haven't brought up the big dominate genre, which is what reggae yeah what's your what's, yeah. your what's your take on family man what do you mean the the a reggae record or the the black flag record no family man was uh bob marley oh yeah yeah i never got too into bob marley I, I, I you know the only thing that i ever got into was um the you know and this is just gonna sound dumb but the only reggae i ever really loved 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 is the Sly and Robbie tracks where it's just them. Well, and I like is... that abstraction of the way they're putting those. There's some repeating bass lines, you know, where he's putting those notes in the weirdest places, but there's only two notes. Yeah, but his, you know, his last name was Barrett, Family Man Barrett, you know, obviously okay. a nickname. But a lot of things they also switch up is the drums to fit those bass lines. Like they'll put the kick on the twos. Yeah. Yeah, that's okay. intense. And that's something I learned to get. Like you said, you wanted bass to have room. One of these ways of doing it is organizing the tunes because the closest note to us is actually the kick drum. It yeah. looks like a guitar, or yours looks like a violin, but they're actually yeah. like a weird kind of drum. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and the jazz thing, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, the j- the early jazz thing, the bass players, the drum, you know, Pops Foster and those guys. They're doing basically the drum part, and the drummers are doing more like a bell and cymbal part. You well, know? we were talking about a, a stand-up and a man alone on the bass, like Bill Black with Elvis, Scotty Moore. <laughs> no, yeah. well, we were actually talking about Earl, Earl Palmer having to make up for not carrying a bass, but they didn't carry a drummer. And this is maybe where, you know, uh, who's Sly's guy again? <laughs> Oh, Larry Graham. Yeah, well, he, he was playing Larry with his Graham. mom and there was no drummer. Yeah. Well, what I'm saying, yeah, with the rockabilly when they would slap against the neck. Sorry for my yeah. fucking memory being bad, Damon. Sorry. 
But you know that what I mean? That was based on a swing pattern, right? That was right, based right, on right. when you learn how to do it. Yeah. Right, right. Yes, swing swing drums, brushes on the snare drum. But I think what we're really talking about is like all this technique stuff, they're means to an end. You know what I'm yeah. saying? They're all yeah. things to serve the tune, to get the band cooking. Absolutely. And, and I think that when you hear me playing with a group, I am still trying to push the band, right? That is kind of the thing that I, that I like to do. And that's why my music's still sort of related to jazz, even as weird as it gets. Like, I really like playing with a great drummer and getting in there and still pushing the group. You know, and that idea, and that I think comes from Mingus. And it also comes from, you know, the minimum philosophy of each person being their own sovereign country. You know, I loved that so much. You know, you know you, that, you brought just up, that one phrase. You brought you know? up Charlie Mingus. Yes. I don't think he ever composed on the bass. I think he always used piano. Yeah. We studied with Art Tatum on piano, so he would just figure it out on, on piano. I think his first tune was Mingus Fingers. Yeah. If you've read Beneath the Underdog, good book. Great, incredible book, man. I love that. You know, I met Buddy Collette, you know, and, and, and I'm just thinking, this is a guy that taught, this guy's dad taught Mingus all about sex and everything. It was just kind of funny to think about what, that. One. Probably one of the teachers. Mingus <laughs> yeah. was a, yeah, he was here to learn. And maybe, he was here to learn. And, and maybe some of that stuff in the book ain't all factual. No, probably it's, it's, it's got. <laughs> but it's a great be, book. I recommend it to everyone. It's beautiful. Everyone, yeah. Look, the other be... one that's good is Art Pepper Straight Life. That's the other good one. <laughs> no, that one bummed me out. Yeah, it's a bummer, but it's, that, it's it also bummed me it's out. It bummed me out. I thought the one that uh, uh, Quincy Troop did on Miles. It's kind of trippy. I just saw Quincy Troop's St. Louis guy. I just saw him uh, read. I was supposed to do a gig with him years ago, and it never happened. But he was a beautiful. He's a beautiful writer, beautiful poet. Well, right, read the Miles book. Right. And Hampton Hawes had a trippy book. There's something about that street time. He wrote that with his wife, and he seemed kind of a little bitter. I don't like what he said about John Coltrane trying to blow his brains out to keep up with the young people. I think John Coltrane knew he was running out of time. It seems like it because he's so productive at the end, you know. I mean, but I don't think Coltrane needed to keep up with anybody. I, mean, I know, own... but that, I'm giving you an example why that straight time book kind of bummed me out. He seems, yeah. You know, he spent more time in jail than out almost. Yeah, great little, player though. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I... Get this, he's from Pedro. Oh wow! He was a kid. His, his his daddy was a merchant marine. He didn't spend much time here, but he's Pedro. Look, uh, oh. where can people find you on the internet, Damon? Well, you know, my, my record label's uh, website, balancepointacoustics.com and balancepointacoustics at bandcamp.com or bandcamp.balancepointacoustics.com. Um, I'm easy to find on the Internet. I'm all over it. Uh, but, man, can I ask you one more thing before we go? Yeah. Can you just talk a little bit about those films with Raymond? Because, you know, Sir Drone, that's a whole other set of influences for me in my life. I mean, that's a, you know, Mike Kelly. Sodrome uh, basically is about making a band in the early days of the punk movement. Yeah, it's an incredible film. And I bought the there, VHS from Raymond back when. And if you were there, you don't have to really explain it because Raymond put in that script all the kind of stuff that was insane about those days. Yeah, that's a great <laughs> film, man. So if you want to know my uh, opinion on yeah, and the yeah, Mike Kelly very sad. Also the uh, guy who played Scooter, Richie Lee, you know. Scooter, him. right? Yeah, yeah. We lost, <laughs> lost both yeah. those guys in real life. So very sad. Yeah. Well, it's funny my friend and I were going to go to a, a Mike Kelly show 
uh, in New York uh, at the Gagosian, the big piece he did, you know, Day is Done. And we didn't know, I didn't know his artwork very well. And I said to my friend, hey, let's go see Jinx's show. And then it was unbelievable. Like, you know, and then I got into his work in a really big way. But, um, but yeah, that film was a, was a big uh, impact on me. You know, it's, I mean, it's funny, but it's also, uh, there's a lot of truth in it too. So it's a great film. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of truth. That's the way Raymond is. You know, he's, uh, what do you call yeah. that? Uh, black humor. Yeah. <laughs> I remember seeing that on a Blue Oyster Cult. Their second album had that on a sticker, so I asked my mom, what does black humor mean? She said, Michael Watt, uh, I want you to read Joe, Joe Heller's uh, Catch-22. <laughs> Perfect. It's been, it's been a big honor to have you on the show, Damon. When you Man, get a big new, honor to be here. I know you do uh, a lot of recordings, but the next record, like this one, was a big deal for you because it had a lot of your own compositions. But yeah. the next one you put out, would you come on the show and can we talk about it? Yeah, for sure. Because I got a couple a lot... of them coming. I got something yeah. with uh, Weasel Walter and Sandy Ewan in the fall and uh, a bunch of other stuff. Because there's, uh, yeah, things I'd like to explore with you. Thank you so much. People, yeah. it's been the August 26, 2020 edition of the Wap Pedro Show. Keep your powder dry.